0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 173, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, who might President-elect Joe Biden choose for his Secretary of Education? And what a change in the executive branch may mean for K 12 schools. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, Carol Tomlinson gives us some pointers on working with students that are experiencing trauma. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here. Today is November 8th, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing?
1: Hey, hey, hey. I am here, rocking and rolling and ready to hit another week.
0: I mean, it is still pushing through kind of that late part of, I guess you'd call it the first semester for most folks around the country. Everyone's on a different page. Some people have been kind of hybrid. Some people have been in person the whole time. Some people have switched from, you know, the, the full traditional model back to hybrid. It just kind of depends on where you are, right? It's different for everybody.
1: That's true. And we've wrapped up two weeks of traditional I can't believe we're around the corner from um, holiday season. Um, we've had a, a decent two weeks. I will say that we've earned every cent of our salaries over the last two weeks. Um, it's definitely been different having nearly 600 middle schoolers in the building all together and at once trying to merge two groups that were attending schools separately, as well as over 100 students who were virtual returning back to traditional. So it really felt like we were starting the entire school year over. It felt like week one. Um, I have to say last weekend, I think I was extremely worn out <laughs> physically, right. emotionally, you name it. This week came back with a bit more energy, um, kids getting into a routine, but it's it's a lot um, on top of when you go back to too traditional, and you possibly have teachers calling in sick, not COVID-related, but they're exhausted. Right, Nick, they're working as hard as they possibly can. And just the whole um, COVID-19 response in itself is exhausting for educators on top of trying to find normalcy um, within the building. And then, of course, looking at numbers and news from around the, the nation on what schools are either doing, going through. Right. Um, it's 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 to me I do believe that it's going to take an emotional toll on educators
0: it if somebody's just tuning in and they don't know who you are, who who what our show, what we talk about, I'm just going to quickly bring them up to speed. Like you're you're in one county over from where our kids go to school, like their neighboring counties, correct. where you actually teach. And and this the, what happened was strange. Each county, even though they were neighbors, did a reversal of what the other county was doing. And, and what I mean by that is, correct the, the county where our kids go to school, they started out in traditional, and then they flipped to hybrid. While you guys started out in hybrid and flipped to traditional um
1: multiple school districts actually um switched to the model we initially started with.
0: Right. And so mm-hmm. I guess if for people wondering why, I guess for for your district you all discovered that what was probably going to be best for the students and especially because of the, a lot of your students didn't have I guess well, internet access and so forth you wanted you wanted um, them in,
1: I in think person. it's deeper than that. Okay. Let's be clear that we are majority minority. And so when we look at our community, that was what was best to keep our children and their parents and their grandparents healthy and safe. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time that schools were returning, it looked as if COVID was affecting the minority communities at a greater rate, including um, at a rate for um, death and not recovering from COVID-19. And that was the best decision for that community. I will say that we have not, still have not had any outbreaks. We've been extremely vigilant and consistent with our practices and trying to keep our buildings safe and clean and tracing if anyone um, is identified as either having a positive result or being exposed to someone. So we've been incredibly blessed in that rate. And whereas many schools around us um, within our county and outside right outside of the county where I serve started off traditional and as of recently have had multiple outbreaks Mm. and, you know, serious concerns with having that many children in the building. And they had emergency school board meetings and switched to the very hybrid model we were following um, for the first nine weeks,
0: and so this is probably a may- way more nuanced answer to the question I'm about to ask. But, like, what's the right answer in your opinion? I mean, is everyone doing the right thing? I think to the right experience?
1: answer, I think the right answer is to do what's best for your school community and for the students that you serve. Um, we see that it was effective for us. Um, of course, we're gonna continue to see, Um, positive results in in and within our school district because it's not, it has not gone away anywhere in the world. Um, So that's being realistic, but being consistent. And if in your district you thought, you know, hey, This is not going to impact our community because we're not majority minority or we're not worried about um, Internet or connectivity, because a lot of those schools that went traditional, you need to understand, even though they had higher economic status, they had better resources in regard to Internet and devices. um, They also a lot of it was that it's not going to impact our community the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after that actually proved them to be wrong, they made the right decision, in my opinion, for the children um, especially where we're our children are going to school and where we're living to switch to a hybrid, to get it to settle down and to get it out of the community.
0: And so let's talk, I'm going to dive into the numbers a little bit before um, we kind of came on air here. I went through every weekly sheet of data from the Mississippi department of health. So we're speaking locally to where we live, which is the state of Mississippi. And I, and I yes. took averages. I don't want to throw a thousand numbers at you guys, but I took averages. I took the first five weeks of data which was basically August 17th through like the 25th of September. And then it took the yes. next five weeks of data, which was September 26th all the way through Halloween. Um, so I wanted to see, you know, are we seeing on average? It's a average,
1: fair split yeah, between, is, between it, terms, by, a, by the way. It
0: is a fair split, yeah. And and so on the teacher-staff side, those first five weeks, we were averaging each week 135 Cases. And I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. quarantine. I'm talking about like positive cases. And that's statewide. Okay. Um, And then the next five weeks, we jumped from 135 to 218. So we did see somewhat of an increase. And this is just teachers and staff that we're talking about. Absolutely. On the student side, first five weeks, 282 students. And the second five weeks, 394. So we're jumping all the way up to almost 400 students a week.
1: And but look at those numbers, and you said them kind of quickly, but for me, it appeared to be a greater jump for teachers than it did for students. Now, so maybe I heard it wrong.
0: Yeah, so again, that's on the teachers, 135 to 218, so it looks like just under 100, but I guess if, I don't have percentage breakdowns here. Mm-hmm. And then on the student side, 282 to 394, so actually more than oh, 100. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so more yeah. than 100 on the, the student side. So um, But either which way you look at it, it jumped significantly in our significantly. state mm-hmm. in October. Now we've talked about this. I think it was the last show we recorded. I don't necessarily put that on the schools, just from what I've seen. No. I think the schools are doing the best they can. It's what's happening they outside of, outside of the schools.
1: And let me just point out to some some things that so our listeners will understand that. And a lot of communities, especially those communities who not have the reservation like many of us do, or I don't want to use the word fear, but just the blatant concern um, about COVID-19, they are still having birthday parties, family gatherings, cookouts. They're still going on vacations. But not only that, um, we have to look at how we're conducting ourselves during Friday night lights. Um, Are we wearing our mask in the football games? Are we socializing um, before, after, during the week? And those are the things that I think are impacting um, our students and then our students are returning to school. And with the numbers we have to remember for our students sake, um, I do think that we, and this is a positive, so hear me. I do think that we are being excessive when it comes to contact tracing and identifying the number of students that need to be quarantined and stay home. Um, That is for everyone's safety
0: you think excessive as in like we are, we are
1: Hey, we're hitting every parameter in that classroom. If we identify, Mm -hmm. um, a teacher or a student who has received a positive test or has been exposed and we try to track, you know, where they've been, how many classrooms they've entered, what organizations are they a part of? So who are they having meals with just all of those things. And then identifying all those children and saying, Hey, we're going to need you to stay home for 10 days. Um, that's what's happening in schools across our state and across our country. And, you know, it's tough. It's really hard. Um, sending that many children home, especially if you're in a district where your students do not have the resources to keep learning going, Mm -hmm. but you have to prioritize what's important. And safety is a number one priority in schools.
0: No doubt. Well, the other big news, of course, is um, it looks like we have a president-elect with uh, Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Mm -hmm. Harris. And it's kind of, I feel like only appropriate that we talk about what this might mean for schools over the next four years. Um, So
1: I think this is a huge issue that many educators are looking at, regardless of party lines or who they voted for. Um, I think as a nation, we want to see some things change and improve, um, for education and for our teachers.
0: Right. And, and I think a lot of that's going to have to do with dollars and we don't know what's going to happen in a lame duck session. I think we, we could expect some sort of recovery recovery or pandemic bill to be passed that one that was, you know, being negotiated before the election and then things just kind of hit a wall. Um, but you know, if, if it doesn't happen in the lame duck session and we have to wait all the way until January to get this, um, we know that we would probably have a a democratic house, a democratic president, and then what may or may not be a Republican controlled, uh, Senate, uh, time will still tell on that due to some special elections or runoffs rather in, uh, Georgia. But, Mm -hmm. um, as we kind of look at what plans have been tossed out there, um, dollars is one thing that we can kind of look at. And we, and we know that, the House Democrats passed a bill back in May, um, that would have been, you know, part of the negotiation of a pandemic bill, and they wanted to provide $58 billion for public schools. And that's, I guess, federal dollars, you know, directly for schools to kind of meet shortfalls. But also, there was a lot of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars for state governments facing budget shortfalls themselves. And and I think that's really the big question mark is will states be bailed out essentially and and that could play a big role in the future for education all around the country.
1: I agree and just hearing that word bail out <laughs> just kind of gives me chills when you kind of, you know, think back over the last 10 years of different things that our country and our states have been through. Um, I certainly hope that there is some relief. I hope that there is some strategic planning and some adjusting in order to to help, but I do hope that our economy can take a positive spin um, because you, you when you think about education, you have to automatically switch over and think about the economy in a sense of what's our unemployment rate going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, are we going to be able to clear out our pandemic and really increase revenue? um across the country, which directly impacts dollars set aside for education, especially in the state of Mississippi.
0: It, well and it's tricky because states have to have balanced budgets. I think it's all states, maybe there might be some that can carry debt, but I, I think all states have to have a balanced budget. I know ours does. And right. um you know, this is there will be a day of reckoning if some of these states do not get some relief. Um and sure. a lot of those dollars, I mean are going to be education dollars that would get cut if um, those states are not
1: whole. Um, and that's terrifying seeing as how, just speaking for our state, when's the last time we've been fully funded for education?
0: Right, no doubt. And that, that of course, has been an ongoing battle here for uh, gosh, my long, entire career. Yeah, I was going to say, as long <laughs> as I've lived in this state, that has been a battle here, fully funding education here in the state of Mississippi. Um, another topic that I kind of um, wanted to dive into uh, regarding uh, president-elect Joe Biden, is who might he pick for uh, Secretary of Education? So uh, Politico seems to be one of the few, I guess we call them, um, reliable news sources that has you know, a list of who might cabinet members be. And they have mm. thrown out three names from the insiders that they've talked to. And um, one thing that's interesting is uh, Biden has already committed to putting a public school teacher atop of the Department of Education. It was-, it was
1: I, I, I almost burst into applause. I'm sorry. <laughs> Repeat yourself. Yeah, right. He, he wants to put
0: a public school teacher atop of the Department of Education.
1: First of all, let me just say that listening to him last night, I think one thing that stood out for for me as an educator is when he said that now we're gonna have a teacher in the White House. Of course, he went on to say that um, Jill's going to be a, a great first lady. Um, being a first lady is one thing, but being an advocate for education within the White House, I think um, the last time that we, we had an opportunity like that was with Laura Bush right where um, she was a an educator yeah. yes and you know her push for literacy and her her understanding of the need to go back and really look at our primary grade levels and readjust some things for children and help them to f- go back and find that love for reading so i'm i'm excited about that
0: yeah i mean of, joe biden with a speech he had the opportunity to say you know, a thousand different things. And it was interesting Trent. to me that he he personally talked about education. Like, that was something that was important to him to bring up in that speech. And he said, quote, for American educators, it's a great day for you all. You're going to have one of your own in the White House. And, of course, referring to Dr. Jill Biden, um, who I believe when she was um, – the when he was vice president and they were living in uh, Washington D.C. at the Naval Observatory, she was actually teaching over at um, Northern Virginia Community College. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see if, from what I understand she is going to continue to teach. So it'll be interesting. She was very
1: a, adamant about continuing to teach.
0: What's it like having a first lady in the classroom? I mean, I guess she's done it as is it the second lady? I guess that's the term you would use. But um, true. You know? So I mean, does she have a security detail? I guess I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that would be oh. like.
1: I'm I'm sure she did. But the detail is going to be uh, on a grand scale at this point. But at the end of the day, I think that it's inspirational. I think that she's not um, interested or trying to be a part of policy or play a particular role um, within his administration. She has been very clear that she's going to stick with her passion, which is teaching. And at the end of the day, none of us, none of us would be where we are without a teacher.
0: It, absolutely. And also from the political uh, Politico article, uh, it says, given Biden's close ties to organized labor, there's also a widespread expectation that he wants to put a union official or someone with union ties in his cabinet. Um, so that's why the name Lily Garcia, who is an elementary hmm. school teacher and the immediate past president of the NEA, as an early favorite for the position.
1: Wow. So uh, That is really awesome.
0: Yeah, she's also a former Utah Teacher of the Year, and she got her start in schools as a lunch lady in the cafeteria. So it'll be interesting. So that's one if name. If that doesn't
1: hit home, right. if that doesn't connect with millions of us, hey, I don't know what will.
0: Yeah, so so it's definitely something um, we'll watch. So again, watch out for that name. Um, you've got uh, Randy Weingarten. And, I, and mm. I, this is a uh, Randy, it's, it's a female, um, the president of the American Federation of Teachers is also frequently mentioned as a contender. Um, but it says she would also probably prompt strong Republican opposition on both policy and political grounds. Um, it says that she is a former high school history teacher and an attorney who previously served as counsel to the president and then president of the United Federation of Teachers. Um, she backed Elizabeth Warren's presidential bid early on this year. Um, but has had more recently been campaigning for Biden across the country. And the third name they mentioned was Linda Darling-Hammond, who is a Stanford professor of education and president and CEO of the Learning Policy Institute. And um, she actually worked with um, Barack Obama's educational policy transition team back in 2008. And she was actually considered a possible choice back then for Secretary of Education. So –
1: all of those sound like phenomenal examples, um, or phenomenal candidates, but I have to say for my personal preference, I really want someone that has K-12 experience, that's truly been connected um, to K-12 education because that is where reform is needed and not another trend, not another idea down for four to eight years. We need substantial reform and change to better um. Resources for our children, and to better our options for our our teachers. So, um, I hear those three names. I think there's some some other options out there that I'm hoping that he considers. And um, I'm just looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, it will. It will be an interesting um, time to watch the transition. If somebody's really interested in that, if you kind of like to get into the nitty gritty and you're on Twitter, I saw this morning, actually, that um, the transition team set up their own Twitter account. And absolutely. um, It's at transition. Forty six is the um, handle on Twitter. And that is the Biden Harris presidential transition account. So you'll probably see some more updates there. Mm -hmm. So um, all Thanks interesting things. That. Yeah, all interesting things that can happen over the uh, the next few months here in the United States. Christina, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? I
1: am.
0: Our guest in today's bright idea segment is here to give us some pointers on working with students that are experiencing trauma. Carol Tomlinson is a professor emeritus from the University of Virginia, and she taught undergraduates, master students, and doctoral students, predominantly in the areas of curriculum design and differentiated instruction. She's also taught public school for uh, 21 years. Carol, welcome to Class Dismissed.
2: My pleasure to be with you.
0: It is an honor to have you on the show. And I was, uh, I'll was i be honest how I stumbled across this topic we're about to discuss. I was looking uh, through the Marshall Memo, as I often do, and he um, had a summary of an article that you wrote, I think it was in uh, Educational Leadership, and it was titled, Learning from Kids Who Hurt. And the stories you tell in this story in this um, article, I mean, really hit a chord with me. And we're going to kind of dive into this in a little bit here. But why did you feel like this was an important topic to write about? Learning from kids who hurt.
2: Well, I think one of our great challenges in school always, because nearly all of us always have too much kid, too many kids in a classroom, is learning to see them as real three dimensional humans. Um, and understanding how much better we can teach if we know them in some depth. And those are lessons that I learned really early in my very long teaching career, and they've served me really well. Um, When you start to look at kids more deeply, then you begin to see the layers of things that they bring to school with you. And over time, um, can establish trust with them so that they are willing to share some things with you. Your observation capacity gets a little bit better. And I think in more recent times, the pressures that are put on teachers to raise test scores um, come very close to making kids just a test score. You know, where is she? How can she go up? Um, is this, is this kid's not doing what we need him to do? And if we don't understand what the kids bring to school with them, not only can we not teach them effectively, but we probably contribute to the trauma that they're already experiencing. So it just seems to me that teaching is a very personal, very connective um, endeavor, especially with younger people. Um, I found that to be true even with master's and doctoral students, but to know them um, is to teach them better. And the more difficulty they're bringing with them, and many students do, the more important it is for us to understand that load that they bring so we can teach better.
0: So let's dive into some of these real-life experiences that you were kind enough to share. Um, you, you talked about, for example, you were teaching a uh, primary grade class, and, and you were walking around, and I guess you, you kind of came up and put your hand on the back of a, of a young child, um, and, and it startled them. Can, can you kind of tell that story?
2: Franklin is what I called him in the story. And he was a little guy who... You know, at four, kids are much more in your face, overt. Um, they they don't hold secrets very well, and when something's troubling them, the trouble comes out pretty evidently. Kids learn to mask some of that fairly quickly, but he was not in that category and was having some difficulties at home, and either was developing, had developed, or was just uh, some sort of a emotional trigger response to things, and. So we had kind of learned um, you know, to greet him carefully when he came in in the morning to try to see how he was feeling and to try to work with him to settle in if he needed that, and many times he did. But as the day goes on, if things are quiet, your mind sort of shifts to the task at hand. And so I was asking these little guys to do something at their tables and walking around and talking with them as they did that. And when I got to his chair, um, without even realizing I had done it, I put my hand on the back of his chair. I wasn't touching him, but I had my hand on the back of his chair and bent over the table just a little bit to say something to a student on the other side who had asked me something. And that one physical approach, uh, was a trigger for him. And he went flying around the room at warp speeds. Um, hollering and and was just uh, distraught. I mean, he was a kid out of control because he was just terrified. Um, And so the rest of the story is that I um, asked a person who was in the room assisting me to, to pick up what I was doing and I walked outside with him and we walked for just a little while and then he let me hold his hand a little bit. And I sat down and talked with him really briefly, not trying to probe what he was thinking, but just trying to get him to rejoin the earth for a little while. And finally, he asked me, if I recall correctly, if we could go back in, and we did. And as he was sitting at his table, uh, Marcia, who was a five-year-old, said to me as I was escorting him back to the table, and he'd gotten seated, she looked at me and whispered to me, you ought to know by now, you can't sneak up on Franklin. And what I thought was amazing about that was she was very aware at five, not only of his struggles, but of the adults around him and the things that we were trying to do to make things better. And it seemed to her very evident that sneaking up on him was a bad idea. And of course, I've found many times over the years since then that kids in the classes see and understand things at least as deeply as we do, and often much more so.
0: And so what what was the lesson for you there? I mean, surely it's not don't sneak up on anybody. It's a little bit more in-depth than that, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, I I think one of the things certainly is, again, um, that you need to be really attuned to kids and that that attention, as much as it's possible, um, needs to span the day. Um, I think it's important, again, to always be reading those signals and to realize we can get that wrong, too. But if nothing else for me, a a little guy like that with that much weight has been a reminder that kids bring huge luggage to the classroom with them, some of them, every day, and that that just simply, that possibility has to be in our minds. And to realize that empathy, compassion, attention, what one of my friends calls noticing, um, needs to be a part of our regular routine, no matter what else it is we're doing in the classroom. Um, very young children can have already had multiple scarring experiences. And we need to, again, to be aware of what that does to a child's brain, what it does to their attention, what it does to a kid to be that terrified all of a sudden in the middle of the day and whatever else it is that's conjuring all that up comes right back again. He was among the first kids that taught me the need for that really almost hypersensitivity to the kids that we teach if we want to have a chance to teach them well, but also to help them heal some.
0: I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, I was asking, you know, do you think that teachers are are taught this stuff when they're in school? I guess, let me ask you personally, I mean, did you you know how to react to that, or was that on the job learning for you?
2: You know, I think all of us as teachers bring some kind of skill that is our personal strength to the classroom, and different ones of Mm -hmm. us have different strengths, and that's great for kids because they don't, all need us to be the same person and they don't all need us to be there for them in the same way. I had always vowed as a kid growing up that whatever else I did in life, I would never be a teacher. And I have done that now for 50 years. But in the course of that, I didn't really even study education. I took a couple of courses because my mother, who was paying the tuition, thought that was the thing to do. But I had no preparation in that whatsoever My first year of teaching, it was totally evident to me that I was about the lamest teacher in the sense of knowing how to share information with kids and have it impact them in some positive way. I was about as lame as you could get. But from the beginning, I was sensitive to them. And I think the reason I stayed in teaching and probably the reason I didn't get run out of town that first year was because the kids fascinated me so much. And I really had a pretty clear sense that it was an amazing thing to be in a room full of young people whose lives you were going to impact for better or for worse. Um, And I was better at that, not great, but better at that even early on than I was in most other aspects of teaching. I think we're just wired differently in those ways. But no, I had not been taught that at all.
0: In the next story you were you were talking about an 8th grade student who was enrolling in your class and um they i guess were telling you that this this young man would put on plays um in his neighborhood and he would do casting and costumes and directing he clearly had a lot of talent
2: sure and in the article I called him Eli I think um he, the last day before the students came this particular year I was working like we all do like a crazy lady on getting bulletin boards up and um woman appeared in my door whom I had not seen. And so she started talking to me about her son and did tell me about wonderful things he had done as a child, immense creativity and leadership abilities and some entrepreneurship and a number of stories that were really wonderful. And I I began to assume as she was telling me about him that she was telling me because he was getting ready to be my student. But all of a sudden her face changed and her eyes filled with tears. And she said to me in kind of a hush, if things don't get better, I'm afraid we're going to lose him this year. And for a minute, I thought she was telling me he was critically ill and would die before the year was over if things didn't get better. And that nailed me to the floor. I I had not contemplated what that would be like. But what she was telling me was that he had become Um, just crushed by schools really over the years and not because anybody's ill intention do what we were doing, what teachers think we're supposed to do, but his learning disability made it almost impossible for him to learn to spell words um, by memory, um, sometimes even to recognize them. He was, had a good vocabulary. It was just that writing on the page that moved and the sounds that made no sense. And sort of a, typical kind of learning disability. And people had worked with him year after year after year, pushing more and more and more on the spelling, written spelling and word recognition in a hurry and that kind of thing. And he could see that the other kids around him could do that, and he couldn't. Um, And so he began to believe more and more year by year that he was just a failure and what she was trying to say to me was, somebody needs to work with the things that he can't can do because there's so many of them. Right now, all he can see is what he can't do.
0: And, and that's and, quite the challenge, right? for For any teacher to yeah. say this is this is now what the challenge I'm giving you from from one parent to a teacher. I mean, what did you do after you heard that?
2: I stood there for a second and, and truly had the thought in my head. I wonder if they've ever fired a teacher for not asking kids to do spelling and vocabulary and answer to myself was, I think I'm getting ready to find out. But that is what I did. I just from the beginning, um, we, we were in a differentiated classroom. So it was not a big deal for some kids to be doing one thing and some another, at least part of the time. And so the fact that you might be doing something different than the kid next to you was unusual for anybody. And so from the beginning, um, when some students might be working with a certain kind of spelling or vocabulary, both of which were requirements in our curriculum. Um, I just had him do different things. Um, Might be sometimes uh, dealing with the history of words or how they've come to be like they are, but always in ways that um, used more of his imagination and more of his incredibly well-developed auditory skills rather than expecting him to be able to spell and reproduce those things. Um, And so I did what his mother said. I wish I could say that I had had that insight on my own, but I did what his mother said and it made a big difference for him.
0: Well, and if there's one thing I want listeners to take away from this story is you're quoted as saying no academic goal is worth the soul of a child.
2: Yeah. um, And I believe that powerfully now. And again, I I still, even though I've been at the university for 20 years, I have always and still seen myself as a public school, middle school teacher and I identify with teachers and I'm in classrooms a huge amount when there are classrooms. And I, I I understand the huge pressure that teachers are under, but the push for test scores and the, and whether that's a state standardized test or an AP test or an IB test, I hear it all around the world. I can't take time to do anything but that. And that pushes us so hard that we feel we have almost no choice. And in some levels we don't really, Um, but to keep pushing and to push every kid in the same direction under the same circumstances. It's also hard to really think about wanting to understand kids deeply when you have, say, 150 kids as a high school teacher or 25 or 30 young children in a room for all the subjects all day. But I I do think it is increasingly difficult for teachers to say, you know, I have lots of kids in this class that need something different than what I had in mind, and there has to be a way to be able to arrange time and space and materials and routines so that that can happen for them because moving kids that next step, their own next step, is always the job of the day in schools.
0: And, and this story actually has a happy ending, right? The, the student actually went on to do fairly well in school in the future, right? He
2: uh, – I, I didn't see him – I saw him a little bit after he uh, – left my classroom because it was a fairly small district and he went on to the high school that other kids went to, but I didn't see him very much. And then after he went away to college, I didn't see or hear from him for a long time and got an email from him one day, quite a number of years later, um, saying my mom asked me who she needed to tell from home that I've just gotten my master's degree and I wanted you to know that. Um, So, yes, he had plenty of ability, and that's another lesson that you pick up from this. It's so easy to see what a student can't do and not really have any way to look and see what the possibilities are. And he was a young man with huge capacity and obviously some really good coping skills. But I I suspect because of the deficiencies that were in his language um, reproduction, it was easy to see him as a kid who had less capacity and he had come to see himself that way. So somewhere in there he found himself again and was able to get a master's degree. Of course, by then there was spell check and a lot of stuff like that that helps, but um, and probably a number of supports even at a university for a student with a learning disability. But yes, he, he's a happy story because he um, be, uh, was on the way to becoming what he might have been by the time.
0: I have to ask, for somebody who has dedicated their life to education, what's it like when you open an email like that?
2: Um, It's really the most wonderful thing. And I'll tell you, as an archaic ancient teacher, one of the coolest things for me has been that in the last several years, um, for some specific reasons, I have ended up connecting with many, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, 100 students that I have taught in the past in middle school. And that was 30-something years ago, at least, sometimes 40, sometimes 45 years ago. And uh, watching them online and hearing what they have to say and seeing the families that they've raised or the comments that they make about time in your classroom is just the most wonderful gift. But it's also a reminder to me that I don't think I've Ever heard a kid say, Wow, that guy that I had for that class, he was the best test prep person I've ever had. They talk to you because you somehow helped them find themselves and they were stronger for that. And the rush to test prep just doesn't do it.
0: Uh, the last story uh, I'd like you to share with us um, has to do with a student who was a well behaved, high achieving student who happens to come up to you one day and says, I wanted you to know I won't be in class tomorrow. I thought you might worry. So tell us why she wasn't about to be in class.
2: She, um, was a student who seemed to be to me, um, mature in many ways physically, but also emotionally and socially. And, um, she did good work. She wasn't a straight A student, but she did good, solid work and she really seemed to care and she participated. And I have the unfortunate habit as a teacher and presenter, um, to find the faces in the audience that are really expressive or the kid in the classroom that's nodding along with you. And I, that's, it's an encouragement. And so on this particular day that I, um, you're referring to, I had been teaching something that was just not great for me to teach. I really didn't love teaching prepositions and conjunctions and that kind of thing and was doing it only because the teacher the next year thought it was sort of the Holy grail. And I didn't want the kids to be, well, on a left foot when they got there. Um, and But usually she, um, and in this story, I call her Rebecca, she was um, a kid who sort of cheerled me even through the uh, grammar stuff. And on this particular day, she, in fact, that whole week, she had been sort of flat with things. It wasn't that she was doing anything wrong. She just sort of seemed to be not present and um, taught me a lesson about that, which I'll come back to in a minute. But, I felt in a way almost like she was letting me down. I wouldn't have said that. I don't know that I could have put it into those words, but I was feeling maybe like I wasn't succeeding because I wasn't reaching her. If I couldn't reach her, I was really doing badly. And I came to school the next morning, and there was a note scrawled on my desk on a little piece of paper that said, I won't be in class today. I just wanted you to know. I thought you might worry. I wouldn't want you to worry. And as I was trying to make sense of that, um, in the doorway, a policeman came up and he asked me if I knew who she ate lunch with. And again, at that moment, I understood how important it is to know whether a kid in middle school has somebody to eat lunch with and whether they have somebody to talk to and wondered, you know, how how do we find those things out? How, how do we know the connections? Um, how do we know a child more three dimensionally? So it turns out she was being um, abused by her father while her mother was in the hospital, critically ill, and would die not too long after that. And she had stayed at home as long as she could because her little sister was there and she was afraid her sister would be next. But she has finally gotten to the place where she couldn't do it. She was about to explode, and so she'd run away from home. And she knew when she left school that day she was going to. And so she left that note on my desk trying to keep me from worrying, which is also a pretty powerful statement from a kid to a teacher as well.
0: If I were in your shoes, I would think, what do I do with this information? Like, how can I help? Or is it appropriate? I mean, so what was your next step?
2: Well, I didn't know anything that was going on, which again, is one of those really great tragedies you find out until the policeman told me what was happening. I had no sense that there was anything at home that was awful, and certainly not that there had been for weeks and weeks. Um... Had I known that, I would have tried to talk with her, obviously privately, and to let her know that I knew she was having real challenges at home um, and that I'd be glad to help her, and I might mention some ways that I could help her. Um, It it, it is the case now, however, in schools, that if a teacher has access to that information, um, the teacher has to report that to the authorities. Um, So if I were going to talk with her now... I would tell her that I had that information and needed to share it because it was the law. But I also wanted just to talk to her as a human being and see ways that I could help her, you know, regardless of that step that I had to take. But I didn't know that until the policeman came
0: and told What me. was your takeaway from this situation then?
2: Well, I think one certainly was uh, that I was somehow taking even just what seemed to be kind of a minor I don't know, lethargy in a classroom. I was taking it personally. Um, It's so important to realize when you're working with kids that almost nothing they do is about you. It's about them because their job is to grow up and it's hard and it's heavy. Um, And so that was one takeaway. A second one was similar to one you just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, I've reminded myself a thousand times since then that conjunctions and prepositions in light of a child's real needs make no difference in the universe at all. And so even when I'm teaching conjunctions and prepositions, if I can do that in a way that connects with kids, that encourages them, um, that helps them laugh in a day that doesn't have much laughter for them, helps them feel bonded to their peers, That's great, but don't be worrying about me at that time because there are lots more important things going on than that.
0: And I guess you you mentioned that young people can often respond to trauma differently from a withdrawal to an explosion.
2: Sure. And again, it depends some on the age of the kid, the nature of the support system, the kind of personality the kid has, how long it's been going on, how many times like that something has happened. But yes, um, you were asking a minute ago about broader teaching on um, how to respond to kids in trauma, Um, and I do think we need much more of that. But we are now seeing in schools, particularly um, in public schools with professional development, and some really um, interesting writing articles, books, that kind of thing, that deal with um, trauma in schools and classrooms and what kind of an environment and what sorts of possibilities there are to help Help kids heal and to avoid making things worse. So, yes, um, I think, and, and you can learn in anything with teaching. There is no hard and fast rule for this will cause this, but you can learn some heuristics, some just general guidelines that can make you much more sensitive and can kind of help you also draw a line between um, being the person who's supposed to fix everything, which we can't do, but also being a person who's willing to reach out and help.
0: Well, I think certainly you sharing stories like these has to get the wheels turning in educators' heads. And, and I, I can't thank you more for for taking the time to, to tell us your experiences.
2: The p- pleasure to be able to do that. And I always feel like in talking about students, whether it's a way we studied something together or a funny story or something like this, that they are talking to us still. You know, they continue to give when they give us a, a real strong image or lesson in our work they continue to share that with other people through us so thanks to these guys too
0: well i know that you have written i don't know dozens hundreds of books
2: um is there
0: anything are you still writing now or is there anything you just released
2: i'm still writing um i have a book that's in the publication process right now the whole book is finished it doesn't really have a title yet um and another one that i'm working on um at the moment probably about a third of the way through that um, is dealing with something a little bit like what we're talking about today it doesn't really have a title yet either but it will be dealing with um, how teachers can be a part of um, positive things learning self-confidence um, peer development for students with all sorts of exceptional needs whether those are identified or not but students who are brand new to a language while they're trying to catch on in school, kids who do have learning disabilities, students who are way advanced beyond other kids, kids who um, have physical um, challenges that they have to meet, all manner of kinds of kids that come to us, um, kids from low income, students who are homeless, so many kinds of things can create, um, really, for many kids, traumatic situations, but certainly difficult situations in school, and that book is... Um, going to be from columbia university press and it will be um, i don't know when it'll be out but it'll have something to do with differentiating for specific groups of students
0: well uh carol and tomlinson i know your books are extremely well reviewed on amazon uh i've I've checked that out and uh looks like you just have a huge following and so congrats to you and, and all the work that you do in the world of education are you ready for our pop quiz
2: you bet all
0: right first question if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be?
2: Oh, that's a really tough one. Well, I'm going to give you an answer that sounds like it's very self-serving, but I probably would say um, what we might call language arts in the sense that we hopefully get kids to do a lot of reading and thinking about reading. And if we um, feel like we aren't totally pressed by something that's you know set upon us, Kids can read about science if they want to, and they can read about history, and we can let them work with other kids that care about reading about and looking at art, and it's sort of what that teacher is supposed to do. Um, so I, I, if I could only choose one, I think that would be it. Maybe that's why I ended up in that classroom, but I think that can open the doors to everything.
0: What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
2: Well, that's a tough one. Um, You know... I think I'm kind of hung up on this because of the times we're in and because of some writing I've been doing. But I read a a passage in a book many years ago that has really stuck with me. A fellow named Harry Passo was saying that human beings are born with one question already programmed in and we die asking that same question. And the question is, what is life and who am I in it? And he says, every one of the disciplines, math, science, music, art, uh, whatever it is, history, all of those disciplines were designed to help us answer that question. And I think the one thing I'd love to see us be able to do is to look at our own subject and say, how does music do that? And let me teach kids music in a way that... Helps them answer that question. Let me teach history in a way that helps them answer that question. Science, literature, it's really profound. And if you get into that, it changes what you do remarkably and changes how kids experience it remarkably. That
0: is a great perspective. That might be the most thoughtful answer I've ever had to that question. So kudos <laughs> to you. <laughs> Thanks, so,
2: Uh
0: What does every child deserve?
2: Um, now I'm going to steal from somebody else um, whose name I'm going to forget for the moment, but who said... Um, when a kid comes into the room, they need to see the adults in there delighted that they came in, delighted with their presence. And I, I think they deserve that. They deserve an adult in their life. I can't, many kids have parents who do that, and that's the way it should be. A lot of kids don't have parents who are equipped to do that or life's stresses are so many. Um, I, I think a teacher who lights up when a kid comes in is such a great start. Um, As long as it's honest, it's an affirmation, it's a support system, it's sort of a guarantee that I'm here with you for the journey. And maybe that's one of the best things we can do as teachers.
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
2: In our country, I think too much pressure that has been established as a result of government policies with almost no teacher input or understanding of what those policies do to either classrooms or teachers. And so I'm going to answer that by saying, I think um, perhaps the greatest challenge is what you might call deprofessionalizing teachers, trying to get them to teach without thinking, to follow pacing guides, to read scripts to kids. And perhaps one of the greatest gifts we could give to teachers is space and opportunity to reprofessionalize themselves.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: Well I can answer that in lots of ways including the uh, you know extension of the previous answer. Um, watch them, encourage them, help them understand how to go each day further, deeper, broader, more creatively than they have the day before so that almost like the young man that we started with with the story, they can become what they are supposed to be rather than becoming or trying to become what somebody else wants them to be, which is probably not a wise thing in the beginning.
0: Which teacher changed your life?
2: I was really lucky because I had a number of them who did that, but uh, and and would have been in pretty sad shape without them, actually. But I had a um, German teacher in in high school when I had no self-confidence, didn't see myself as a student, didn't see myself as a person who had very much to offer was scared of my own shadow and she encouraged me to take leadership roles in the classroom. She got me to help her put on a statewide conference for language learners. Um, She actually even uh, took me with her to um, a university several hours away that summer to be her assistant when she taught a university course on German. And that sense of belief that she had in me, that sense that she would give me something to do, and I couldn't let her down for it. I didn't think I could do it, but I couldn't figure out how to let her down. I didn't want to do that, so I just went ahead and figured something out. And through that process, um, she let me recreate myself in some very important ways. But I could give you several other names that were part of that process, too. I, I would wish that for every child.
0: And last question an easy one. Pen or pencil?
2: Oh, pen, pen. For heaven's sakes, pencils. I break points. I don't ever have a decent pencil sharpener. Um, I'd rather scratch out than work with those old nubs.
0: Again, Carol Tomlinson, we appreciate you so much. Uh, loved your stories. And uh, thank you for sharing them with us.
2: I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and talk with your audience.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at Class Dismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week.
1: Class
2: Dismissed. (music) Thank <music> you.